Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Panic Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I am joined today by a very special guest. It is Panic Pass podcast regular, Mr. David Emmett from motormatters.com. David, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. I am uh, not so bad at all, uh, Neil. Thank you very much. And how are yourself? Very well indeed. Just back from Andalusia. And what a beautiful place it is to be at uh, this time of the year, I must say. Um, We've had the first European round of the 2019 season. Intriguing, uh, record-breaking in some respects. Uh, Perhaps a little bit of a letdown come Sunday in terms of the spectacle, in terms of the racing. We've had uh, some really excellent racing so far in 2019. MotoGP it didn't quite live up to uh, the spectacular billion what we saw on Saturday, um, but there were still quite a few interesting things to discuss and pick through in the aftermath. And uh, well, I think um, that was another uh, resounding success for Mark Marquez, the reigning world champion, David. Um, this looked pretty easy. It was almost as if he was trying to uh, trying to make a bit of a statement after what happened in Austin. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, certainly it looked easy. I don't think it was quite as easy as it looked because obviously uh, well, this is a subject I'm sure we shall come to later on, but Fabio Quartararo looked like he might have had the pace for, uh, for Mr. Marquez, but then his gear shift uh, or his gear linkage broke and uh, his race ended in in heartbreak really which was a which was a shame but uh, certainly uh, you know Marquez was in really good shape he was pushing really hard all weekend we did see one sort of odd moment in morning warm up when his bike when he came round turn 13 the last corner and um uh, was just about to wind the gas on and nothing seemed to happen so he sort of toppled over it looked like he managed to get his gear in or his his bike into neutral which is really odd uh, because you actually have to press a lever to do that uh, mark afterwards talked about or where he sort of talked around the problem said something about yeah we did something on the bike which um, which we which we shouldn't have done so i don't quite know how that happened but again it was one of those little moments that sort of reminds you that Repsol Honda are not they're not infallible this year which is uh, unusual because usually they never make uh, those sort of uh, mechanical mistakes but uh, yeah I mean a bit like last year you know Marquez was absolutely unstoppable I mean he led the race for the first what maybe eight nine ten laps with the two Petronas Yamahas behind him and uh, after Morbidelli's pace sort of slacked off, he just kept the same pace and, and managed to open a gap, and that was uh, that was just about it, really. Yeah, he managed it pretty much to perfection. And one thing that stands out is that the last time Marquez didn't complete a lap in the lead of a MotoGP race, well, that was all the way back in Qatar in early March because he led, obviously, from start to finish in Argentina. He was leading from start to finish in Austin until, well, the finish of his race um, after a a strange mistake and, uh, yeah, led all 25 of the laps in Jerez as well. Um, It was interesting afterwards listening to what Mark was saying. Uh, some criticism came his way. Um, he said he had listened to some of his rivals mention that this was uh, one of Marquez's weaknesses, that there was the occasional mistake in the bag. And this was a bit of a statement to those rivals that um, he really is in great shape. And uh, the issues that he had encountered in uh, at the Circuit of the Americas were, were certainly behind him. Um, what did you make of uh, some of the comments? Because we, we learned some things on, on Thursday as to why Mark crashed, he, he gave some hints. 
he almost, well, he pretty much said that it wasn't actually his mistake. It was something to do with the bike. And then afterwards, he retracted those words and said, oh, no, no, it was my mistake. But we have been having some kind of issues. Um, you mentioned there that Repsol Honda isn't quite infallible at the moment. What, what did you make of, uh, of Marquez's comments about uh, Coda? Yeah, I mean, what was what was interesting was that Cal Crutchlow was actually a little bit more forthcoming about the problems than uh, Mark was. Uh, Marcus said in the uh, press conference that they'd managed to solve some of these problems. They'd managed to get to make things a little bit better, but uh, they still have it. And th- the problem seems to be um, in the engine braking. This presumably you know, they've made the engine more powerful. It's much faster which is good they needed the extra horsepower to take on the Ducati uh, but obviously that comes at a cost and that the, the, the cost is clearly in engine braking I mean we've all got those images of Mark Marcus breaking into corners sort of you know firmly engraved on our minds uh, of him breaking hard into the corner with the rear wheel in the air uh, the problem comes when the when the rear wheel touches down on the um, down on the uh, on the asphalt again uh, last year they had that that phase a little bit better under control but now the what seems to happen is the 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 engine braking is a little bit less uh predictable and so sometimes the 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 rear of the bike there's not uh, uh, not quite as much engine braking as as they uh, as marquez need or the riders need and so the, the the rear pushes the front a little bit and that can cause cause the front end to wash out especially when you're sort of right on the limit or like in austin when the the track is in you know is a little bit bumpy in a little bit of a state so they seem to have fixed that certainly marquez hinted at they at them having fixed it or at least found sort of a a partial solution to it uh, cal crutchlow was less convinced he said he was still having the same sort of problem so we shall have to wait and see uh, just to what extent they've uh, they've fixed it but I think we're going to see it's going to make it interesting at Le Mans to see again it's one of those corners with really hard braking and then sharp corner entry to see uh, yeah to, to see just how good the Honda is yeah and on that subject David just how good the Honda is I mean Marquez said after Argentina he said again after Jerez that he feels as strong as he did last year last year was a a tremendous season, um, one in which he, in some respects, dominated. Um, but I'm looking down at the results here and I'm listening to guys like Cal Crutzlow and Jorge Lorenzo speak and it doesn't really sound as if the 2019 Honda is really a sorted package at the moment. Obviously, the engine, they've all commented on how strong the engine is this year. It's taken a step forward from the 18 model. Um, but you look at Crutchlow, uh, eighth he was on Sunday, never really competitive throughout the weekend. Lorenzo was a, a different story altogether. We'll get to him a little bit later in the show. You know, and it's worth pointing out that the Spanish Grand Prix last year, Pedroza was in the fight for the podium. Crutchlow would have been there as well had it not been for a crash. He was on pole position as well. Um, it seems that Marquez is the only guy that's getting the, the most out of the package at the moment. Uh, yeah, but I mean, this is this is a known quantity. I mean, we've seen this in previous years as well. Obviously, 2013, 2014, the bike was uh, the bike was pretty good, even though towards the end of 2014 it was not fantastic. 2015, the, the bike was pretty disastrous. It took them half a season to actually sort the bike out. Uh, but even then, Marquez was able to be competitive to um, you know finish on the podium to win races, uh, just not with the kind of frequency which he hoped. Uh, 2016 again, the bike was not completely perfect, and basically, Marquez is capable of of riding around um, the, those sort of 
problems by taking a little bit more risk, which is uh, positive, uh, but dangerous because you know when you're taking that sort of risk you're occasionally going to uh, end up um on well in the gravel at turn 12 in austin yeah that does seem to be the case at the moment and as you said uh, Le Mans will be uh, a fascinating uh, insight into just uh, well how much further um or how much better the, the honda is this year yeah, it's also worth uh, noting uh, noting that Takanakagami is um, uh, it is really competitive, and he's on a 2018 bike. So that you know that that wasn't really all that much bike uh, that um, uh, that much wrong with the uh, with last year's bike. Um, it has a lot of positive points. You know, Cal Crutcher keeps on saying that he felt much more comfortable with the. Uh, 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 with the old chassis, but you can't—they can't use the old chassis because of the uh, the new engine and intake section has basically, you know, completely changed the uh, the the uh, sort of the packaging of the bike and wherever where everything is, and that seems to have changed the feel of the bike. So we shall have to see. But we saw uh, Stefan Bradl on a an interesting bike in uh, in Jerez with a chassis with carbon fiber stuck all over it and 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 he had a pretty good race as well yeah and Bradle wasn't really allowed to speak to the media hrc being incredibly secretive uh with regards to what he was testing but there was uh yeah obviously that carbon chassis we also saw a kind of um uh, a salad box on next to the exhaust uh, similar to what Ducati have been running for the last couple of years I see Matt Oxley has uh, nicknamed it the bento box more than likely featuring some form of um, maybe electronics that have had to be moved around because of the air intake at the front of the bike um, Marquez tested the bike on Monday at Jerez for the first time said his fastest lap of the day on that bike which was a very competitive time indeed um, uh, but we tried to get a little, glean a little more information out of him, David, and well, we weren't really getting much in response, were we? No, I mean, if you were playing, um, if you were playing testing bingo, you would have filled up your card very, very quickly because it was <laughs> all on the uh, some positives and some negatives, and uh, all about the compromise and the best bike doesn't exist, and uh, uh, we um, uh, we learned lot, uh, lo- uh, we learned lots from this, and every single possible testing cliche and I think he managed to pack into a, a into into five minutes so yeah he's obviously been instructed very uh, carefully by uh, Alberto Pooch who thinks information is so precious it should be locked away in the throat uh, uh, and uh, uh, and the key thrown away so and also um, yeah, that it, uh, the gentleman of the media should be it was it was interesting but I mean you know the, the numbers don't lie you look at his pace he set his fastest bike yeah, fastest lap on that bike and he also had a really really good pace in that same run that he set his fastest lap so uh, it's going to be interesting to see when this bike really does turn up whether it'll turn up at um uh, whether it'll turn up at Le Mans or whether we wait until Barcelona because there's another test on the Monday after Barcelona. I think if it does turn up at Le Mans, it'll also give us a sense of the urgency of um, for uh, of Honda. It'll it will tell us that Hon just how worried Honda really are about the feeling with that bike. So we come away from the Spanish Grand Prix. Marquez has won his second race of the year. Uh, he's taken back the championship lead, and uh, all in all, looks to be in a pretty good place. But the one big thing I'm going to take away from this weekend, David, uh, was the performance of, well, two performances. One of the uh, Petronas SRT Yamaha squad in their fourth ever race in MotoGP. And also, specifically, more specifically, the performance of Fabio Quartararo 
the youngest ever rider to have uh, achieved a pole position in the Premier class. Younger even than Mark Marquez, younger even than Freddie Spencer. Quite astonishing performance that was on Saturday. Um, I would love to have seen the odds that you would have got on a Patronus uh, SRT 1-2 in qualifying. I think the first uh, independent team 1-2 in qualifying since 2005. The first Yamaha independent team qualifying 1-2 since 2002. I mean, this is really quite impressive stuff. Um, and then for a quarter hour to do what he did on Sunday to uh, dispense with uh, Franco Morbidelli and then chase after Marquez whenever guys like Rins, Vinales, Davizioso were struggling to keep up with them. Um, it was quite a remarkable performance. Um, this felt like the start of something quite special. Uh, yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, like, uh, Quattararo has been strong. Um, I mean, he's, he, he really showed that he was quick because he, uh, he was quick at the Qatar test. Uh, he qualified fifth at, uh, uh, at Qatar, but then had that disaster on the grid, which... Uh, was also interesting in itself um, because that was a learning for him. I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg um, uh, afterwards and he said, yeah, I mean, that was basically, he had a huge benefit from having uh, messed up um, uh, on the grid in Qatar because it meant that was, you know, you learn your lesson once, you don't have to learn it again. You know, uh, you know how to manage it much better. And he had a, he got a good start from, um, uh, from pole position. Unfortunately, Mark Marquez got, got a, uh, got a better one. Uh, he ended up behind his uh, behind his teammate, and it looked to, to an extent that um, Franco Morbidelli was 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 holding Quattararo up. Certainly, at some point, uh, uh, Morbidelli's uh, tyre started to go. He said he lost feeling in the front and uh, uh, both front and rear tyres as the uh, as the front started to overheat a little bit. Uh, so he backed off, and um, uh, it took Fabio about a lap to get past. Um, uh, 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 to get past Morbidelli and as soon as he got past him he was back on the pace again he was back on Marquez's pace more or less you know within uh, within a tenth or less uh, so it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if his uh, if his gear linkage wouldn't uh, hadn't have broken yeah this is a guy that let's not forget set the fastest lap in Qatar uh, gets pole position in his fourth ever race. Maybe we do have to tread carefully because Quartararo was quite possibly the most hyped rookie that ever came into Grand Prix racing, certainly in, in my lifetime. Um, I think quite justifiably, considering what he did in 2013 and 14. Um, but through a succession of uh, different events, uh, different decisions, it never really worked out for him as we thought it would in Model 3, Model 2. Yet here he is in a fantastic team. Lots of experience, lots of support there. Wilco Zielenberg, obviously the team manager, has a vast amounts of experience in managing different riders, different personalities. Um, and also the most friendly bike on the grid for a rookie, really, with the M1 we saw with uh, Zarko Folger siren in recent years. That It's pretty... Pretty normal for rookies to jump onto that bike and get up to speed, but I think this was something else. But what was uh, maybe the, the biggest uh, takeaway image of the weekend was uh, Quartararo in that garage afterwards, devastated, crying. Uh, I think for about 15 minutes, he was uh, pretty much inconsolable. We, however, caught up with him uh, not long after that. Uh, he had gone for a shower, changed into his team gear, and uh, was speaking to the media. And uh, this is what he had to say. Well, the pace was fast, but you know, it's like um, when you're riding with these guys on the first laps, I learned many things and I was acting on the bike like I have more experience that only that, that it's my fourth race. 
um, doing some mapping change, uh, see that the tire pressure was high, so I managed to get it cooler. So for me, we take a lot of experience. Okay, unfortunately, we, we didn't finish the race, but we need to take, like I said, all the positive and, and let the negatives here. But I think, I think so that we can fight for the podium on, on, in this race. But uh, yes, the pace was, was really good. And uh, yes, like I said, I managed to get something into the race that make a plus and um, had uh, like two tenths faster on the pace that on the practice. So yes, my feeling was really good. When we was close, we have three in, uh, I think, less than half a second. When Mark was doing a mistake, everybody was doing a mistake, you know? <laughs> so um, that's something that you need to, to realize from behind that he break late, everybody break late, and yes, that's that's something that that you learn a lot with the fuel tank. Here you feel uh, you feel a lot, and uh, yes, now I I have in my head that all the experience I take I will manage to get in Le Mans. I saw you looking very emotional straight afterwards, but you seem quite happy now, quite quick to put it behind. Well, of course, you know I was really disappointed because we can challenge for really good position, and. Um, Yes, unfortunately, you know, when you look at the pace I had, the weekend we do, and uh, I only can be happy at the moment. And uh, fortunately, like I said, no podiums, no top five, no points, but the experience we take is a lot. I think if I was second, I would stay in second position, not push really hard to find Marquez, who was already far, but it was perfect to get a reference, you know, like uh, for the front tire to don't get it on high pressure, to, to have a reference to make good lap times and yeah. also from behind I think I had 1.5 seconds so it's good to that we can manage. Were you also careful in overtaking Frankie because obviously he's your teammate and I think you might have been in trouble if you'd have... Uh... Well I was not really careful you know I just overtake and yeah of course I will not try crazy things yeah. on, the, on my teammate and on everybody yeah. of course but uh, the feeling uh, of overtaking here in Jerez, that is a tough track to, to do it, was, was good. The next race is in France. Are you ready for that? Yeah, yeah of <laughs> course, of course. He's one, the only home GP for me, so for sure will be, will be tough. That a lot of uh, fans, a lot of people, but I, I'm ready to, to go there because it's a track that looks like the Yamaha is going well. And uh, yes, just can't wait also for tomorrow to, to test. Thank, Thank you, you Fabio. Fabio Quartararo speaking on Sunday there. And uh, you can hear he was uh, a lot more chipper than uh, the result may have suggested. Now, David, is this going to be his level going forward, do you think, in 2019? Uh, well, I mean, you made a really good point about the fact that the MR is the, uh, is the most user-friendly bike on the grid. That makes a huge difference, obviously. So, yeah, going forward for 2019, is this going to be his level? I don't see why not. I think there's going to be tracks where the bike works and the tracks where the bike doesn't work. You know, so far, Quattararo has been uh, pretty solid everywhere he's been, even at even at tracks which haven't really worked out for the uh, for the Yamaha. I think uh, being on pole was a good confidence boost. I think a much bigger confidence boost was the fact that he felt he had the pace to match Marquez. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I definitely think he's going to be uh, competitive there. Um, we'll have to wait and see how he uh, deals with, you know, if he has a couple of bad races, 
Uh, we'll have to wait and see how he deals with that. But there are some really good Yamaha tracks coming up. You know, Le Mans, uh, also his home race. I was talking to some of the uh, uh, some of the people in the team, and they were saying um, they learned a little bit from uh, Joan Zarco last year, who sort of you know went to pieces in uh, uh, in Le Mans a little bit just because of the stress of his home race and being and being hyped up. Uh, they were going to try and protect Quattararo a little bit from the uh, from the local media. We've got Assen coming up. We've got Mugello coming up, which is quite a good uh, you know quite a good uh, track for uh, for the Yamaha. Uh, Yamaha goes well at uh, reasonably well in Barcelona as well. So yeah, I mean we shall. Yeah, we, we, we shall have to wait and see. I think uh, I, I think he's definitely made it. And the other thing is that I mean you, you have to give credit to the team. The the the, the team is so good, so uh, good at managing expectations, at managing their riders, at keeping them realistic, giving them the encouragement that they need, uh, uh, and also you know the kick up the, uh, the kick up the pants that they need from time to time. So yeah, I I, I think that's a uh, I think he's in the in the right en- environment, and I think. Certainly, you were saying he was the most exciting rookie to come into to, to Grand Prix, and he and he came. He was, you know, really exciting when he came into Grand Prix, but he did seem to all fall apart a little bit when he was in the wrong environment. Yeah, wrong management. I think it's safe to say um, some bad decisions, and then just uncompetitive machinery. And you had to wonder whether he moved up to Model Two at the right time. But hey, look, it's uh, it seems to have worked out well for him in the end. Um, I thought it was quite interesting listening to Johan Stickerfeld, who's the team principal for um, that structure. He said that basically, from uh, I think from the first round of the season, they've barely touched the bike. Quartararo uh, has basically just gone out on a very similar setting each track at Argentina, Austin and Jerez, and has just almost adapted himself, uh, learned how he should change his riding style to get the best out of it. Um, and uh, listen to Franco Morbidelli speak in the press conference on Saturday after that qualifying performance. He said that essentially what Cuadrado did in the very short space of time from Sepang to the first race is that he changed his biggest weakness, which was breaking into low gear corners from massive uh, or very fast straight uh, and turning that pretty much into his biggest strength and he said he would always go to consult Quartararo's data because some of the things that he can see in Quartararo's breaking is, is really quite impressive so he said he's basically turned his greatest weakness into uh, one of his big strengths and that is uh, well that's no easy no easy feat at all on a MotoGP machine uh, not least when you are 20 years old and I think 14 days when he scored that sensational pole position um, so yeah Quartararo showing some quite sensational potential and his speed and consistency on the Monday test I mean my god <laughs> that was uh, that really was quite something so very interested to see what happens at Le Mans because of course memories of Johan Zarco there as a rookie back in 2017 was uh, well that was really sensational and uh, you, you do fancy Quartararo to be maybe uh, up there in the top six, maybe even better. Who knows? Um, uh, when we get to there, we shall find out a little bit more. Um, so we'll kind of segue from Quartararo to Yamaha in general, because the highest place Yamaha was Maverick Vinales. And it was an interesting race from Vinales, third place, a track that he's never really gone well at, at Jerez. In some ways, um, he was second best to the satellite squad, um, but... This is always going to be the big test for Yamaha, right? Because they've been quite positive in each of the three tracks that we visited before then. Sorry, before Jerez. Um, and Jerez has been an unmitigated disaster for the factory team in the last two years, in 17 and 18. Um, it looked it was like it was going to be a repeat on Friday 
Rossi was outside the top 15. Vinales was shaking his head, gesticulating angrily uh, in FP2. It looked like uh, we were returning back to the, the dark days of Catalonia 2017 when neither rider really had an answer. Um, but they scored pretty healthy results. Uh, third place for Vinales, sixth from Rossi after a terrible qualifying performance. Um, what is your take on Yamaha at Jerez, David? The factory Yamaha team. Yamaha were really helped by the track, uh, by the new surface. Uh, I mean, the speed of the of the new surface is just absolutely astonishing. I think the race was thirty one seconds faster than last year, which uh, thirty one seconds over twenty five laps tells you tells you exactly how much faster it was. The more grip there is, the better the Yamaha is. Uh, Yamaha exploited that, but there was some really there was there were some positive things in another way as well. So, for example, um, uh, you know, Vinales um, started from the second row, and um, uh, so far this year, what's happened when he's qualified close to the front is that he's just gone backwards in the first couple of laps but he was competitive right from the start he managed to stay in the front group didn't lose much ground and um, ended up on the podium uh, which was good and you know Rossi Rossi missed out on uh, Q2 um, by I think four hundredths of a second or something which is uh, you know nothing at all really because of that he couldn't get through to Q2 from Q1 uh, but again, Rossi looks really, really strong. He looks, um, uh, and he had a fantastic race coming through from um, uh, uh, coming through the field. Uh, started what was it, fourteenth, fifteenth, and uh, ended up in sixth, which is just a really, really impressive. It was a really impressive ride by uh, uh, by uh, by Rossi. So uh, things are looking good, and you know we're going to uh, Lamont which is again a track that's been resurfaced so it's got lots of grip um, 2017 we had the fantastic race with um, you know Rossi and Vinales decided at the last corner or almost the last corner so yeah I, I, it, it feels like I mean Yamaha still have some problems but it feels like they're actually they're heading in the right direction and, and they are getting closer they don't seem to be uh, sort of lost in the uh, lost in the in the fog as they were last year yeah and we're seeing some performance as well where um i think argentina was the same for vinales lost on friday it seemed like it was a total disaster and possibly in previous years it would have continued that way um he would have got frustrated and and dug himself into a hole and, and never really got out but uh, this was once again, we're used to Rossi obviously pulling stuff out of the hat on Sunday, but I guess this was another uh, showing that Vinales is able to work his way through problems, even if it doesn't start well um, the race weekend, which has to be a, a promising thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, really, um, I think last year uh, Yamaha would have left um, uh, Jerez sort of, you know, with a with a premonition of uh, of failure. But now that I think they would leave with a lot more optimism. They were not particularly um, optimistic after the test, not particularly positive after the test on Monday. But they weren't particularly downbeat either. It was all sort of, you know, working on the details and little bits, little bits here and little bits there. Um, no big steps, but still lots of work to do. And is this, we know that essentially in the last couple of years, um, we know that there were certain differences with the factory bikes and with the Tech 3 bikes. And there are different reasons for that that were maybe, uh, or maybe for a whole episode of a, a 
Paddock Pass podcast in the future. However, uh, we do know that Morbidelli is pretty much on the factory spec bike and Quadraro is more or less on the same bike as well, albeit with uh, without the carbon forks from Olin's and 500 less revs in the engine, I think. Um, that must be a big factor as well, right? Because essentially we've got, they've got four bikes on the grid now and every rider's data and setup information uh, is is crucial. And in fact, um, sorry just to uh, almost answer my own question. I do just came to me now um, that someone on Saturday with uh, close connections to Vinales did tell me that one of his big turnarounds came from Vinales looking at Quartararo setup data on uh, Saturday morning. And that uh, was one of the areas where he made or that led to him basically qualifying quite well and having a good race. So I guess that in itself answers what my question was going to be, David. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you talk to any of them. Um, uh, again, I was talking to Wilkos Elenberg about it, and he was saying, you know, uh, what happens with the data? It's all shared. It's all all shared equally, and um, everyone basically looks looks at the uh, the fastest guys' data, uh, trying to find out what what they are doing, which is making them that much faster. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a huge benefit because they the the data for the for the factory guys is actually usable on a um, uh, on on a Sunday, which wasn't the case with uh, previously when. Uh, the the Tech Three team had uh, basically last year's bikes uh, because there were too many differences to actually sort of understand what the where they could gain and where they couldn't gain. Or, and with even with Quasararo, sure he's not on the you know he's using the alley uh, the the aluminium forks and he's using the uh, and he's got less revs. But the geometry of the bike, you know, the basic geometry of the bike, the basic uh, uh, weight distribution of the bike is is identical, and so they can sort of you know look at suspension settings and make. Um, real, you know, take take real lessons from, uh, you know. So he might be using a little bit more weight on the front, or a little bit more uh, weight on the rear. He might be using uh, a, a slightly different um, uh, sort of spring or or damping at the rear, and uh, they can uh, the, the the factory guys can can look at that and actually use it. Yes. So Yamaha seemed to be in a pretty good way. Um, another factory. We're not really saying anything that's uh, revelatory here but Suzuki another confirmation that Alex Rins um, is one of the championship challengers perhaps also that the Suzuki uh, in Andrea De Vizioso's eyes is the best bike uh, the best bike for turning on the grid um, he said the corner speed that Rins was able to to hold through the fast rides at the end of the lap at Hareth was just amazing um, and he had really no answer for that whatsoever um, Rins looking good again David but one big issue that's uh, really uh, preventing him from fighting right at the front with Marquez. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, honestly, if he could sort his qualifying out, it would be um, uh, the. If he could sort his qualifying out, I think he would be possibly even leading the championship because he was just he was just that much. He's so good in the race. He's so strong in the race. The Suzuki is a fantastic package, as David Chesser was saying. You know, you know, uh, the it, 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 it turns the be- it's the best turning bike on the uh, uh, on the grid, and you could sort of see that he was almost it was able to stick the bike more or less wherever he wanted, just because he was he was capable of turning the bike better. Even you know the braking. They say that the Suzuki's weakness is the braking, but um, he still managed to uh, uh, to do David Chesser on the brakes a couple of times, which is no easy feat so 
yeah, I mean, the bike all round is good. It's also a question of whether it's, you know, Alex Rintz, whether the problem is with Alex Rintz or whether whether it's with the Suzuki, because Juan Mir has also struggled with trying to push for a fast lap. I found it strange that they weren't actually, you know, trying out um, qualifying strategies during the test on Monday, but instead were working on, uh, uh, you know, working on a new swing arm and, and, and working on new parts. Yeah, it did strike me as slightly strange as well. Um but, well, yeah, we spoke to David Brivio on, on Monday after the test had uh, concluded. And he said, he was trying to play it down a little bit. He said that this was, we're only four races into the year. If you look back at qualifying last year, Rins' performances actually weren't that bad, um, especially towards the end of the year. Um, but, yes, it's, uh, it's certainly one area that, uh, that he can work on. And you would have to say uh, he'll be trying to work on for uh, Le Mans. Um, now, we've uh, spoken about the guys that were in a decent shape. Um, now time for, uh, well, that part of the show that we know all you listeners out there really like. It's time for the winners and losers from Hareth. The drum roll, please. And I'm going to put you on the, sh- <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot, Mr. Uh, Mr. Emmett. Your big loser from the weekend at Hareth. Now, there was a couple of uh, a couple of people vying for this, I feel. Um, who was your big loser from the Spanish Grand Prix? Really, there were two big losers, and I, I strongly suspect that uh, um, uh, I will take one and you will take the other. Uh, but for me, I think it was probably Jorge Lorenzo. Um, he came, he's, you know, he'd always regarded his, uh, you know, this race, Jerez, a track he loves, a track where he goes really well. Uh, as the start of his uh, season, he finished twelfth, which is not great. He's eighteen seconds off of his uh, off of his teammate. Nearly got beaten by Polis Bargaro if Polis Bargaro hadn't made a stupid mistake, thinking the race was already over a lap early. So obviously, Lorenzo still having problems braking, porting himself under braking. He really needs to sort of work on his upper body strength, and he's not been able to do that because of his broken scaphoid. And Honda haven't been able to give him the sort of the combination of seat and fuel tank and pegs and all the rest of it, which allows him to hold his body weight up uh, uh, under braking, not just on his arms. So he had an awful lot of things sort of going against him. But really, uh, he had he would have hoped to have come out of the Spanish Grand Prix with some momentum. And I don't think he comes out with any momentum whatsoever. And I think that's uh, that's got to be a concern. Yeah, not least because he had a a really fast fall right at the end of testing on Monday. His second fall of that day, the first came in at turn six, the second was at that really fast uh, turn seven left. I think it was pretty much on his, uh, his last lap of the afternoon. And uh, although I think he was generally okay, he was certainly beaten up quite a bit and that will have done his confidence absolutely no good whatsoever. It was interesting to listen to Lorenzo after the race on Sunday. It was pretty much as down as I can remember uh, seeing him since my time uh, started working in the MotoGP paddock. Let's listen to some of the things that Lorenzo had to say on Sunday. Jorge, this can't be the result you were hoping for at your, uh, at your home Grand Prix. You seem to be you were sometimes fast here and, and it didn't come together in the race. What happened? Exactly. Uh, I cannot be happy about my race, obviously. I cannot be enthusiastic. I need to... logical thing is to be sad, to be disappointed, and to be worried. Uh, obviously, I'm going to keep, keep going. Tomorrow we have an important test with many things in the head 
to test uh, with the with the wish and the faith that some of them will give us some more speed. But obviously, it's a difficult time for me. Uh, but I will keep going, uh, positive, and, and it's the only mentality that I I can have. I have uh, problems in the entry of the corner, especially. Uh, still, I. I don't have uh, support, the, the bike is trans transferring too much weight into the front and it's difficult for me to, to have a lot of energy in the, in the arms. I need, we need to find some solutions for, for this problem. And then I'm sure something related with the, with the engine brake or, or the chassis, we are missing something that still we, under we, not, we don't understand and this gives me uh, and safety in the entry of the corners. I'm losing a lot of time comparing to Cal and, and Nakagami and of course to Mark until we don't uh, improve this problem and find a solution we will not go fast. Jorge Lorenzo there. Well, you mentioned there about uh, some of the issues he's having on corner entry. Um, upper body strength I don't want to be mean. This is a guy that's had basically eight months of never-ending injury, fighting for fitness. But this strikes me, David, as, well, I mean, he learned this lesson last year. Is this a question of Lorenzo's own preparation? I, well, um, yes, he has been injured. You know, he, um, uh, yeah, he had a very severe uh, rib injury um, at, at Qatar. He's got a broken scaphoid. It, that does make it very difficult to actually train your upper body but I think certainly Lorenzo has a history of not training particularly hard. I think we all remember him uh, uh, coming back from was it 2013 or 2014? I think after the uh, after the injury and after the um, uh, after he you know smashes. Um, uh, smashed his collarbone up, uh, had surgery to remove plates from uh, from that, and he turned up at um, at the Sepang test. And uh, I think he was with Alpine Stars at the time, um, and uh, Alpine Stars were having to uh, change his leathers every uh, basically about twice a day because um, he. How can we put this? He had been relaxing a little bit too much over the uh, uh, over the winter. Um, and uh, was you know clearly out of shape. I, I mean, he was tubby for a racer, which is really really sort of skinny for a, a actual normal humans. And as as a bit of a fat person myself, it's a bit cheeky for me to mention it. Um, but certainly Yamaha have also previously when he was with the, when he was with the factory uh, Yamaha team, uh, Yamaha sent Wilco Zielenberg down to Andorra to stay with um, uh, Lorenzo over the winter uh, uh, to go skiing with him to make sure that he did some did his training. Um, they. Yamaha never said that it was for to, to check up on his training, but it was fairly obvious from everything around him that um, it was actually to check up on his training. Um, so yes, d d Lorenzo has form, uh, but he also has a genuinely 
Uh, yeah, he also has a genuine excuse to um, to explain why you know he he's not physically uh, prepared. He has been working a lot on his uh, on his cardiovascular fitness. He's, he's a lot fitter than he's ever been. So it's not as if he's not he's not doing anything. But he really needs to work on his uh, uh, w- certainly work on his on his upper body strength. And you can see that the Honda need, needs it because you know if you look at uh, if you look at Mark Marquez, if you look at Cal Crutchlow, they both. Well, they but certainly by the end of the year, once they've been riding the bike, the bike all the year, they both look like boxers. Um, they've got uh, uh, you know clearly powerful shoulders, powerful arms from from having to wrestle this thing around. Yes, um, difficult times for Jorge Lorenzo. I don't think any of us were expecting them to come away from Jerez with a twelfth place next to his name. Uh, nothing short of disastrous, I feel. Um, well, you go for Lorenzo. I guess the obvious uh, other choice, David. Uh, which I'm going to have to go for, is uh, Joanne Zarco, uh, because the Frenchman's uh, concerns and worries you know, really don't seem to be decreasing uh, at all. Um, he was caught on camera uh, giving a rather scathing assessment of uh, KTM's RC16 after he crashed an FP1 that was caught on uh, on on TV. Um, the microphones were in the garage and picked up him saying a few th- rather uncomplimentary things about uh, possibly the front of the bike uh, or how the bike uh, loses speed, which I shall not repeat because I know that uh, children may be listening. Um, it was another, I mean, Zarko's previous performances at Jerez in, uh, in MotoGP have been nothing short of fantastic, but he never really hinted at uh, being able to Challenge Paul Espargaro all weekend, um, and uh, yeah, finished a pretty, pretty dissatisfactory race on Sunday um, outside the top ten. Um, and then we had um, an interview that uh, KTM CEO Stefan Pierer gave to uh, German publication Speedweek, and he was really critical of Zarco. Actually, really critical about uh, his preparation, how he must uh, change the environment around him. And, um, yeah, he's been a massive disappointment, I think, was his uh, direct quote. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's hard to see it any other way. Clearly, the uh, KTM is... Um, you know, it, it's not as competitive as the bike that uh, that Zarco has got off with uh, has got off of. Um, but also, it's a it's a very different kind of a bike as well. It requires a, a completely different riding style, and that seems to be. Uh, part of the thing which he's he's struggling with, uh, I mean, uh, Paul Espargaro was happy to get off of the Yamaha and onto the uh, onto the KTM because the KTM you can actually fight and push and and sort of you know wrestle around and, and make it and make it go faster. Sarko um, seems to want to just uh, to to let the bike do all the work and that's the perfect way to ride a motor, to ride a Yamaha, uh, but it just doesn't work with a um, uh, with a KTM and the KTM he just doesn't have any yeah I mean he, he just doesn't have any fr- confidence in the front end but uh, but Neil whose whose fault is it is it is this Zarko's fault for not being able to change his uh, uh, change his style or a KTM not working hard enough and is Stefan Pira overreacting or what uh, I would say it's a, a little bit of both to be honest because uh, Zarko I mean I spoke to Pitt Byrer, um their motorsport director on Saturday and he basically said that Zarko needs to stop riding this bike like an M1. It's never going to be an M1 and he has to accept that. Um, and Zarko, you feel, is uh, a little let down at the fact that uh, they haven't 
made enough changes um, to make this bike a little more um, rideable for him. Now, it was worth pointing out that he tested a new chassis at Le Mans prior to the Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, I think he was using that throughout the weekend. Um, so KTM brought that uh, for him to help out a little bit. Um, he said he made some forward steps with the front of the bike on the Monday at the test. Um, but yeah, I would say at the moment, well, yeah, at the moment it seems it's Arco really, you know, when you've got Miguel Oliveira coming up essentially and, uh, and handing your ass to you, uh, in Argentina, uh, I think you definitely have to look at yourself somewhat. Also, uh, KTM seemed to have been quite critical that Zarco almost the environment that he creates for himself at the racetrack and maybe away from the racetrack isn't what it should be. And it was interesting indeed to hear that he's appointed uh, Jean-Michel Biel, ex-motocross uh, world champion, um, AMA motocross star and uh, 500cc pole sitter um, to be his uh, his advisor um, in, in future races. And Zarco indeed said that he was in contact with Biel over the weekend in, in Spain just in terms of how he should manage himself and how he should uh, manage his race weekend. So we'll have to see whether that uh, pays off. But yeah, for Piro to be saying that uh, Zarco's two-year deal, that there's no guarantee that he'll be with the team next year. I mean, my God, were we really expecting those kind of comments to come out at, uh, after the fourth race? Yeah, I mean, that seems that really does seem quite excessively harsh after four races. But that's... KTM, I think it. I mean, it, it certainly feels like uh, what uh, Pira took most uh, was most insulted by was the fact that he was that that, that Zarco was caught on camera slagging the bike off, and that really um, uh, that's uh, KTM management doesn't seem to take kindly to uh, criticism of it, uh, of its bike. So um, uh, yeah, we shall we shall have to wait and see. And it seems like his uh, uh, Zarco's performances really started going downhill after he split up with his manager last year so um which was about the time that he signed with um uh that he signed with KTM so it's fascinating seeing how you know racing really is about the package it's about everything it's about the bike it's about the 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 team it's about the rider but it's also about the people around him and it seems like there are uh, a few sort of you know problems in that area and we shall see how much uh, Jean-Michel Bell can help in um uh, in, in in that respect, Zarko was interesting when detailing his reasons for recruiting John Michel Beale. Speaking Monday at the Hereth test, let's listen to a little bit of what he had to say. Uh, some news uh, came out today that uh, you might have a new uh, coach or um, person you're working with, um, John Michel Beale. Yeah, a guy that obviously has massive amounts of all types of racing experience. I spoke with him. Um this winter a little bit, but I was not ready. I spoke with him last week, and um, it's finally Pete that uh, announced it uh, even before me. <laughs> uh, because Pete uh, Berer is really enthusiastic that uh, this kind of guy with a lot of experience can give me this support that maybe um, that I, I split my business with my ex-coach. There are some some decisions for myself, but about the performance and the technical side, maybe I'm losing something. So having something different to somebody different, but with totally different experience and different approach, it's just on the Grand Prix, I think, with this art development that we are doing, the target is to bring me to control more the stress, to to keep that freedom in the mind that uh, 
a top rider need. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's more KTM's decision than yours? Or? No, no, no. It's more the um, a work with him and me. Okay. It's not a support to KTM. I just say Pete is enthusiastic okay. because uh, I spoke about this and I already said to Pete that I knew Jean-Michel Bay because we are almost from the same area. Yeah. But anyway, no, it's more close relation between rider and coach rider than a, a support to KTM. Okay. Um, and will it be a guy that's just with you during the race weekends? Will you maybe train a little bit with Jean-Michel away from the track? You can how, have training and advice from on training, mm. but just for from what he, he saw, um, it looks my method not not bad, and it's overall control this stress uh, doing GP that the the last two races are Argentina Austin has been complicated because difficult feeling yeah. made me quite down yeah. and Jerez uh, was a little bit better but also because he, he could already from far I was sharing feelings with him yeah. so yeah control the beast <laughs> from uh, like all the guy with good advice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's more this uh, support, uh, and then there will be always some technical things. Maybe you can see things also from track. Yeah. Mm, we will see. Starting also, it's a full project. Yeah. Um, that I'm not. Yeah, almost responsible of this project to to bring the, the project on the top, and. Um, I need to control many details and it can be a, a guy that helped me to be like a, a boss. Yeah, okay. And I guess that's that's something you're still experiencing for the first time, right? Like the first time that you've been one of these guys trying to bring this. Yeah. It's big expectation, big responsibility. Yes. Overall, when you start from far. And uh, two years ago, they are explaining me that they were even more far. Not so I'm quite respectful for what Paul did. Um, but now we we are in a platform that's to the top, still another platform we have to go. So, as I say today, it could be a, a good day to even enjoy more and find some little details by riding, but I cannot because I need to work on bike. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Johan Zarko speaking on Monday at the Hareth Test. Now we've spoken about our losers of the weekend. Time for our big winners. David, your winner from the Spanish Grand Prix. Um, I am going to come out of left field a little bit and I am going to say uh, Raslan Rosali, um, who is uh, the director of uh, the Sepang circuit and one of the big drivers behind putting together this Patronus SRT team. And Raslan had been quite disappointed, really, after the first couple of races with the results that the Patronus Yamaha team had been uh, putting together. Now, I think he was being a little bit premature in his judgment because, uh, I mean, seriously, from the start of the, se the, start of the season, they've been really well. 
but now things are really starting to come together. Having the two of um, uh, the two of them, both um, uh, both Quattararo and Morbidelli on the front row, uh, Quattararo taking Mark Marcus's record for youngest ever pole uh, sitter. Uh, having the two of them as real protagonists of the race, I, I think uh, at a stroke, uh, Raslan Rosali uh, and the Petronas team have really. Uh, sort of justified uh, Rasan Rosali's decision to, uh, uh, to to do this to try and put this team together and to, uh, and to try to make it work so I would say I mean there's there's a lot of winners this weekend but if I had to pick one I think I think it would be that it's hard to argue with that choice Dave yeah but stunning achievement from uh, the Petronas RSRT Yamaha squad in just its uh, fourth Premier Class race um, yeah Razan Rosali, obviously, it was at the Jerez last year, essentially, where he was uh, in the paddock to sort of inquire and see what the chances were of uh, putting that team together. Um, and uh, well, what a remarkable, uh, what a remarkable year it's been for him, um, along with having uh, Hafi Sairin now as a permanent member of the MotoGP class. Um, yeah, their their team uh, scoring a one-two in MotoGP qualifying and showing a potential podium pace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you. Who is your biggest winner from this weekend? Uh, well, you went for uh, Raslan Rosali, the man behind uh, the Petronas SRT uh, racing squad. I'm going to go for uh, Paolo Simoncelli and uh, the Sick 58 Squadra Corsa team uh, racing in Moto 3. That had uh, not just its first podium in Moto 3 World Championship at the weekend. It had a one-two finish with uh, Nico Antonelli scoring his first race win since. Uh, May, sorry, March 2016. Uh, he was backed up by teammate Tatsuki Suzuki. He finished second. Um, a stunning result for both of those guys. And um, yeah, this was uh, this was no bolt from the blue. Both of those guys were looking really strong all through the weekend. I think they topped one of the free practice sessions. They were first and second. And um, both men have kind of been banging on the door of uh, scoring uh, a really good result in the Moto3 class this year. Antonelli had some issues with uh, his starts. And with his aggression on the first lap in Qatar, uh, Paolo Simoncelli is uh, quite outspoken in uh, his assessment of his riders. And he said that after the race, and you watch Antonelli in the, the first lap of races since then, he's been really quite strong, quite aggressive. Um, he's put a pretty consistent start to the year together. And I think he's just one point behind Aaron Kinnett in the world championship. So it's been one of uh, probably Antonelli's strongest start to a Grand Prix season um, since he debuted in Moto3 back in 2012. And uh, Tatsuki Suzuki, of course, he was leading the race. I think he was eight laps in the lead of the race at Kota before crashing out when uh, a few riders behind were starting to put some pressure on him. And you felt that that result was coming for him as well. And I loved the way that he sort of stormed into the first, uh, the first corner, the first lap, uh, and was keen to lead right away. There was no sort of hesitations or there was no mental block after crashing out of the race in, uh, in Coda. And I think that uh, took quite big balls. And also there was a nice, uh, yeah, it, it linked up well. I think it was uh, 15 years since um, since Marco Simoncelli scored his first Grand Prix win at Jerez back in 2004, uh, 2004 in the 125 class. Um, so for his dad then as a team owner, manager, uh, to score a 1-2 finish, um, well, I thought that was a very poignant um, and, uh, yeah, fantastic achievement. And, um, yeah, I don't think it's the last that we're going to see from Antonelli and Tatsuki Suzuki this year. I think both of those guys... Mm, I'm not sure whether you would fancy them to necessarily challenge for the title, but I think uh, on this form, they can definitely uh, look for more race wins in 2019. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and we were talking again about you know being in the right team and being in the right environment uh, when we were talking about Fabio Quartararo. Uh, obviously, Antonelli Antonelli went to uh, Aki Ayo's team and didn't do very well there at all because he didn't really fit in with um, uh, with Ayo's uh, sort of way of working. But it seems that uh, the, the Simoncelli team is much more of a, uh, a, a, a there's much more of a sort of a, a family atmosphere, and that seems to work much better for Antonelli. So I really think we could see some. Uh, something really interesting from uh, for, from Antonelli this year and with Suzuki coming second and we had Toba winning in Qatar I think the, the best thing is there's this real resurgence of Japanese um, of Japanese riders Japanese talent was in fact I'm looking at the race uh, uh, the, the, the race uh, results here and we had Suzuki uh, second Toba sixth and Ayogura in ninth so that's three Japanese riders in the um, uh, in in the top 10 and I think that's absolutely fantastic really good for Japan really good for uh, Asian racing and I think also a sign that the Asian Talent Cup is really starting to produce it's starting to produce now uh, uh, and a really positive sign for the future for the rest of the uh, 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 for the rest of the series yeah because you look down into the FIM Junior World Championship and the Red Bull Rookies uh, Yuki Kuni uh, has been doing the business in both of those classes I think he scored a win in both classes, um, one at Hareth and then in the FIM Junior World Championship the week before at Valencia. Uh, Ryusu Yamanaka is in the Australia Galicia FIM Junior World Championship squad for this year. Uh, he took a race win um, at Valencia a few weeks before as well. Um, so, yeah, the future certainly looks bright for Japan and Grand Prix racing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, long may it continue because uh, certainly when I was growing up and watching Grand Prix racing back in... Uh, Back in like the mid '90s, um, you know, Japan really had a, a strong force in 125cc racing, and uh, it was always fantastic to see. Um, and uh, with five full-time competitors in Moto3 this year, you fancy that that's um, that's maybe going to grow in future race, uh, future seasons. So, yeah, long may it continue. Yeah, it's exactly, and especially in the in that lower class. I mean, you know, I remember uh, growing up and watching Japanese riders um, just. Uh, being so incredibly strong and um, and competitive in the especially in the one two five class and to an extent also in the two fifty class, but you know the list of uh, the the list of names of fantastic uh, one two uh, Japanese one two five riders is very long indeed, and it looks like this generation could um, uh, could you know earn the right to write their names alongside the you know the the the, the, the Nobio Okis and uh, the Sakatas. Um, Sorry. Uh, the Sakatas and yeah, the Yuichi Ui's for sure, absolutely, yeah, some fantastic names, yeah, the, the Tetsuya Radas, the Jerokados, yeah, the list certainly goes on, um, for sure, yeah. So I think that brings us pretty much to the end of uh, this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast, episode number one hundred and one. Yes, indeed, a uh, yeah, uh, a fine number indeed. This will go uh, straight into um, uh, room one hundred and one. Yes, and that is partly down to uh, some of our loyal uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, now is a good time to remind you that we do have a Patreon page in which you can donate to the Paddock Pass podcast for as little as $3 a month, which basically uh, helps us to uh, bring you shows like today with uh, some interesting content, uh, analysis, and, uh, well, words directly from the rider's mouths in the paddock as well. Um, so if you'd like to uh, check that out, patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast uh, you should follow us on twitter as well at paddock pass pod and on facebook too that's facebook.com forward slash paddock pass podcast 
I'd like to thank my uh, guest for today, Mr. David Emmett of motormatters.com. Thanks for joining us, Div. Uh, thank you very much for hosting, Neil, and I shall see you in um, uh, that there part of France, Le Mans. Yes, a minor miracle for the second year in a row, David Emmett is going to Le Mans. Yeah, and I would like to point out that it was actually a mistake because I thought I was going to be working for Eurosport at Le Mans, but it turns out I won't be working at Eurosport uh, uh, at Le Mans this year. Th- this year, uh, I will be later. Uh, will be later on in the year, but but not at Le Mans. So I'd, I'd already booked something, and it was too late. Stop spinning fibs and just tell the truth. <laughs> you wanted to come back to Le Mans after the lovely experience you had last year. It wasn't and as you were bad as I thought. Completely it was wrong to be about it being It was such entirely a baby. tolerable. <laughs> Yeah, Le Mans, uh, certainly uh, one to one to visit for uh, the enthusiastic support that the French fans give you and give the riders. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, did, I mean, I didn't see any. Um, uh, I didn't see anyone being sort of literally skinned alive or roasted over an open fire. So um, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as I was expecting it to be. Yeah. Well, there's always this year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we do make it through uh, the Grand Prix of uh, France or the French Grand Prix, uh, we will hopefully have a show for you. All the reaction uh, from the Mont. And uh, well, thanks very much, listener, for joining us again for this latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. I'll speak to you soon. Like a true professional, Neil. You're getting very good at this. Tut, tut, tut. Hashtag eye roll. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Please leave that bit out, Brian, so I don't I feel like I'm fucking stupid. Um, <laughs>